Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. You know, sometimes standing up here is such a delightful torment. (laughs) For so many different reasons. One of them is because I see all of your lovely faces and I wish I I could come and Labrish and chat and fellowship with you, um, but I have to be up here and prepare, and sometimes this is as close as I get to you for the week, and so I'm kind of feeling like I just want to come down and, you know, <laughs> just put the chairs in a circle. <laughs> it's a blessing to see you all guys, and that's serious, genuine, every single person, and I thank God for what he's doing among us, and for his work in our hearts and lives, and for where he's leading us. Um, We serve a faithful God who is greater than our weakness. Let me say that again. We serve a faithful God who is greater than our weakness. All right then, amen. I need you to preach with me today, yeah? God is so good. And um, I'm, I'm... I'm one of those guys who will often exclaim that I'm excited. And I am excited. Um, We're preparing for a new series. And and I genuinely believe that the series is going to have a tremendous impact on our hearts and our lives, individually and collectively. Um, You know, our vision is to be a healthy church, Equipped to disciple, effective in outreach. And healthy individuals make for a healthy church. Amen? And yet, our individual health is a community project. So, we don't become healthy and maintain spiritual health in isolation by ourselves. But it happens collectively. And, you know, one of the things I am convinced of, and we see in Scripture that God has ordained preaching as a means of imparting and affecting health in the life of his people. And it seems foolish, especially in a day and age where we're used to seeing people, you know, go to lectures and sit in seminars and so on and so forth and acquire a lot of knowledge and really kind of come out the same people, just with more information, just smarter sinners. (laughs) You know what I mean? And for often, that's us when we come to church. But praise be to God that his agenda is greater than that. His agenda is for our transformation into Christ-likeness. So, let me pray and I'm attempt to set this up. <laughs> Dear Lord God, we thank you for your presence among us. You're here, the omnipresent God who's not just here at a distance, but right here among us, sitting with us. In between us, even the, those, those who are sitting shoulder to shoulder, you're right. Lord, furthermore, you're not just around us. You're not just present with us here in location, but you're present with us in our hearts. Your spirit is in us. We need to think about that more often, Lord. We need to stop and think about that more often. And so, Lord, as we settle our hearts to interact with your word, we know that you empower your word, 
that your Holy Spirit speaks life to our souls by means of your word, illuminating our understanding, switching on the lights in our head as we hear your word, helping us to know you better. And so I thank you for bringing us here today, Lord. You know, even for those who have come at the invitation of a friend or family member and, or have just passed through, who may not really know you, but maybe they know of you. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to all of us today and that, Lord, we would leave here with a clearer view of you, a clearer view of where we stand in light of you and an encouragement, Lord, that you call us to come near, to draw close. Thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ through whom all this is possible because of his precious blood that was shed on the cross for us. And for his name we pray, amen. How many of you have ever watched a film on the basis of seeing a good trailer? I know that for me, the other day, right, I saw the new Superman, and when I heard about the new Superman, I wasn't interested in seeing the new Superman. I'm like, how many times are they gonna reinvent the wheel? How many times are they going to, like, the Man of Steel? Like, they, they're going to come with all the different names, but it's Superman, isn't it? I mean, we grew up watching that on TV. I swear, even in black and white, that's how long the, 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 the brand has been out. And yet, when I saw the trailer for the new Superman, I was like, you know what? I want to see this film, you know? And I did see it. And um, a good trailer can really... Um, capture our attention and, and draw us in to the main feature. And so today is the trailer. And I pray that it would do just that. <laughs> if it doesn't, well, you're going to have to watch the main feature anyway. <laughs> now, Starting a new series. A sure assurance. You see that? Okay. How many of you um, remember the days of blankety blank, checkbook and pen? Yeah? Ah, a few people showing your age. Some of you are old enough, but you never really cared because it just looked like one of the boring programs. Blankety blank, checkbook and pen. And before the days when, you know, hole in the wall cash machines were um, more widely and commonly used, um, you had to go and pay for things in stores with checks if you didn't have cash. That was the main form of alternative payment. And very often, you would go to pay with a check and they would say, um, well, you know, we actually need to see some kind of verification. We need to see some kind of, um, we need to have some kind of assurance that this isn't going to be one of those faith checks that Christian normally write, that, that are just put out there, but bounce. <laughs> <clears throat> and so what you'd have to do is maybe have to provide a check guarantee card and you would they would say, okay, that assures us that this is good. We see that it's a genuine check. We see the amount that is there, and you've given it to us on trust. And at the end of the day, whatever happens, 
this card guarantees that we're going to get our money. Form of assurance. How's your assurance level as a Christian? How's your assurance level as a Christian? Christianity is such that those who walk the Christian walk can have all kinds of struggles and all kinds of challenges. And no less than in the area of assurance, of being sure about who we are and what we have in Christ. Some people lack assurance. People lack assurance for many reasons, and I'll share a few. Some people lack assurance because they don't think that we can have assurance in this life. When it comes to the scriptures, to God, eternal life, all that is promised, they have this kind of view, well, you know what, I believe it, it makes sense, but I can't be absolutely sure no one can until we get there. And so they go through life with that degree of uncertainty, which sometimes, if you've ever been in that place, can creep up on us and cause us to feel a little more than uncertain. It can cause us to feel actually very uncertain to the point where we're like, actually, is this really real? Maybe we've looked at ourselves and we've looked at our own inconsistencies, our own lack of character and our own contradiction of our profession of Christian faith. And in looking at ourselves, we felt like, am I really real? I mean, I say I believe in Jesus. I say I've received the gospel, but... How can it be when, actually, my life is so inconsistent? Maybe you have come from a Christian home, and you're one of those people like myself that have grown up hearing the gospel. So there was never a point in time when you could say, yeah, I know that I came to believe at that point. It was just something you've always known. As a result, there are times when you think, but actually, have I really made that transition from death to life? Have I really changed? Isn't things just the same as they've always been for me, knowing the Christian truth, accept, accepting it, that's what I grew up with, and just continuing to follow suit? Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe it's just because my family have brought me up in that way. And so you feel a certain degree of uncertainty. Maybe you're one of those individuals whose profession of faith always seems questionable in the eyes of others. Maybe your friends never ever seem to really take you seriously when it comes to your Christianity. 
Your unsafe friends are always inviting you to things that you would think that they would know better. And even your Christian friends don't seem to invite you to things that you would hope they would. And everyone seems to be viewing you with suspicion. <laughs> As a result, you find yourself in a place wondering, am I really real? Is my Christianity for real, for real? Well, let me encourage you. Wherever you are on that spectrum or otherwise, that God has granted through his word assurance. And not just assurance, but a sure assurance that we can know for real that we are in the faith that our Christianity is real, that God is real, that his word is real, that his work of eternal life by his spirit through the blood of Christ is real. And so, huh, I've been trying to see how, I can long, how long I can stretch it out before I um, actually reveal which book we're doing. But let me do the reveal. First John. <laughs> First John. Real Christianity verified. That's where we're going. And First John is a tremendously wonderful book, just as much as it is tremendously difficult to handle. If anyone's ever attempted to read 1 John, you will have noted that it seems to go around in circles. He touches on issues and then moves on to other issues only to come back to the same issues. And it seems almost as if he's not actually kind of focusing on any one key point. He's just meandering through this field of issues and sharing his heart, as it might seem some of us do when we're up here preaching. But there is a sure intent to the book of 1 John, and it is that we would have a sure assurance. And so 1 John is written to those who lack assurance, but ought to warrant assurance. First John is written to those who lack assurance, but ought to have assurance. If you've in any way attempted to read First John, you might have found it quite confrontational in the times that you've attempted to read it. And felt like, mm, is the Lord trying to catch me out? Is the Lord trying to prove me wrong? So I'll give you an example from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Immediately, that braces you by the neck. Hold on a minute. I say I have fellowship with the Lord, but huh, do I walk in darkness? Am I lying to myself? And we feel like 
I swear God's trying to catch me out in this book. But that is not the motive behind the book. The purpose of the book is written to provide assurance to those who ought to have it. So, in chapter 5, verse 13, we see an overarching purpose statement. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know, that you may know. How many of you actually want to know for a certainty that you have eternal life? You you welcome that information. You'd welcome that understanding. Praise God. Because we will, if we don't already have that, we will find that assurance provided to us through the pages of 1 John. But also, 1 John is written to those who may feel they have assurance and shouldn't have. You ever been in that situation, right, where you felt really very sure of yourself, only to find out later that you really shouldn't have? You might have been in a discussion with someone and been convincing them, no, it's not that, you know, it's, I, that happened to me the other day. And, oh, Lord of his mercy. <laughs> Listen, I was, when I think about it, I just feel so, I, like I could just curl up in a fetal position and just stay there for the rest of my life. So, I was speaking to a brother. I'm going to keep the situation vague, just for my own protection. <laughs> Not to protect no one else, but for my own protection. I was speaking to a brother who was part of the ministry team of an individual who has written a book. Yeah? Well-known minister. If I was to say the name, many of you would know who it is. <laughs> Lord of his mercy. And so, anyway, I'm speaking to this brother, right? And we're talking about this new book. And I knew that I was going to be meeting this brother, so I thought to myself, he's from this, this writer's team. Um, he's part of the ministry team, and he's kind of, he, he represents it in Europe and so on and so forth. So at least let me do a little bit of homework and kind of find out what's been going on with the ministry. And, you know, so I, I, read, I saw that there was a new book out, and I was like, okay, cool. Good, this book sounds good, everything. So when I went there, now there's me full of myself, feeling like, yeah, I've done my homework, I already know what I'm talking about. So we start discussing the title of this book. And I'm trying to convince this brother from the ministry team of the writer that the book's title was something other than it was. <laughs> and so he said, oh, have you read the book, blah, 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 blah. So I said, oh, you mean blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he's like, oh. Man, no, I think it's blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, maybe, okay, maybe. But I really thought it was blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, what possessed me, apart from pride? <laughs> so you can imagine how mortified I was when it really dawned on me what was going on. And how much of a plum, an arrogant plum that I looked in front of this guy. You ever been in that situation? You had assurance that you, didn't, you shouldn't have had. 
you had no right to have. There are some who have assurance concerning their Christianity that they have no right to have. None whatsoever. Some people think, you know what, I'm gifted. No, seriously, I'm gifted. I pray in tongues. I've prayed for people and they've been healed. Of course, no doubt I'm going to heaven. No doubt I'm God's. And some of you are thinking to yourself, but hold on, what's wrong with that scenario? Surely, if that's happening in their life, then they must be assured, rightly. But then in Matthew 7, Jesus said, many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy and do mighty works and all these things in your name? Jesus doesn't deny that they've done it. He just says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never, ever knew you. I never had relationship with you, even while you was doing all those things that you so wrongly trust in. Wrongly placed assurance. Some people feel like, you know what? My theology's on lock. My doctrine is tight. Listen. I can talk to you about soteriology and harmatology. I can talk to you about pneumatology and eschatology. Listen, I'm that guy. I know my stuff. I've read systematic theology by Wayne Grudem from cover to cover. And they feel on that basis that they have assurance that they're gods. Wrongly placed have no right to have assurance on that basis. Some, I've got to get this one in. Some of us have had a conversion experience. And at the, there was a point in time when, you know what, we met with the Lord. And we shook like the mountains that Moses walked on, and there was tears, and we felt his love poured on us like warm honey, and a weight was lifted off our shoulders. And so I must be assured of my salvation, right? I remember going up to the front, and the preacher laid his hand on me. I could barely stand. I must be assured of my salvation, right? I mean... If that experience counts for anything, it proves that I'm saved. Really? Misplaced assurance. And so what we see in 1 John is that not only does he grant assurance to those who are in need of it genuinely, not only does he strengthen the assurance of those who already have it, but also he writes to those who have a misplaced assurance that feel they are right with God but on the wrong basis. And therefore, in a very strategic and incisive way, sets about the task of separating the wheat from the chaff 
by means of the revelation of God rather than throwing people out the church. See, Jesus said that we're not to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? We're not to attempt to do it because we will judge on appearance and make the wrong judgment. But that doesn't mean that a sifting doesn't take place in the life of those who profess to be Christians. Because the word is truth. And in a very, on, in a very um, unusual occasion, Jesus talked about the, 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 the truth of God, of his word, bringing division and separating the genuine from the fake. And so we see that John will do that very, very skillfully through this letter. Now, he has certain methods by which he goes about doing that. He will often contrast the two people. So I read verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, conjunction, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there is often a point of contrast that John makes as he goes through the letter contrasting those who ought to have assurance and the right sense of assurance with those who ought not to have assurance and need to be clear about that. Another means by which he does that is he questions, and as he raises these questions, he states conditional facts and promises. So, he will use the term if regularly and frequently. For example, chapter 1, verse 24. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So he makes a conditional promise. If the condition is met, the promise will be true. Now, for many of us, that becomes uncomfortable, especially in, uh, as individuals who are familiar with the emphasis of God's grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. We hear if and we're like, but hold on, I thought it was unconditional. I thought the Lord's love toward me was unmerited. I thought all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, regardless. Well, John strikes a balance in this letter as he makes these statements of conditional facts and promises. 
in verse 29 of the same chapter. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Verse 17 of chapter 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Conditional fact. And so, this is one of the means by which John, by the Spirit, skillfully goes about bringing clarification and bringing certainty. Because the important thing is that we all know where we stand with God so that we can do whatever is necessary in response to God and that by his grace. So these are means by which John goes about bringing clarity and assurance whilst taking away false assurance. But there's more, because this letter is a very practical letter. It's a very practical letter to the point where what John goes on to do, he actually provides proof. He says, I'm going to give you proof concerning your assurance so that you can be absolutely sure in your assurance. So you imagine you go to the cash point and you go into draw out some money for lunch and you think to yourself, let me just check my balance while I'm there. And you check your balance and you see that there is 10,000 pounds in your account. And you, you look, and you think to yourself, and you rub the screen, you take your card out, you put your card back in and check it again in case it was a glitch. And the figure comes up again, and you know that you never put 10,000 pounds in your account. And you start to get butterflies. There's 10,000 pounds in my account. And in your heart and mind, you're thinking, what a result. But at the back of your mind, you're thinking, why is it there? Is it supposed to be there? Hold on, and you know what? I better go inside the branch and check this. Some of you wouldn't. You just start drawing out money. Edit, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bro. Let's shame the devil. We would just start drawing out money, 500 pounds at a time, until the card limit busts. But, you know, those of us with somewhat of a conscience, I should say, those of you with somewhat of a conscience, <laughs> go inside the branch, and you'll be like, you know what? There's, um, there's some money in my account. You can't even talk. You know your knees are weak. You don't even want them to say, no, it's not meant to be there. But you're hoping, but you know you've got to go through the procedure, right? There's some money in my account. And they're like, yeah, that's what people tend to have in their account. And you're like, not me. <laughs> I don't. 
That's what makes this remarkable. Listen, um, here's my card. Can you just check my balance, please, and just tell me what, what the balance is? Um, we see that you have 10,000 and 10, pounds and, and 25 pence in your account. And you're thinking to yourself, the 25 pence sounds about right. Because <laughs> you was trying to tap that overdraft for lunch. You know that. First direct. Woo! Those who know, know, innit? So anyway, <laughs> they're like, okay. And so you're like, well, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but could you tell me, um, look, uh, yeah, look, can you tell me the last transactions to, 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 to credit to my account? And they look and they see that a credit was made and it was 10,000 pounds and it, they don't say anything. Can you just check that that credit is, is, was, was meant to go to my... No. Because um, you're not trying to hot yourself up. Obviously, you want the money. But ultimately, what you're going to endeavor to do is try and get some proof. Before you start booking holiday, <laughs> and whatever else you might do, you want proof. Am I lying? You want proof. You want some kind of assurance that this is meant to be in my account, and we're good. I can, I, can, I can go to town with this money. And even though the bank staff is telling you, well, the money's in your account, the credit was made, you still need proof. More proof. Because, come on, I'm not really trying to have to pay back money that wasn't mine in the first place. And this is what John does. John, knowing that Jesus is proof enough, goes on to clarify proof by which we can have complete and total assurance. And one of the ways he does this is by using this phrase, by this. By this we know, by this we know, by this we understand, by this. And as he does so, he has given us clear, concrete examples upon which we can have assurance. Let me give you an example. Chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Do you really know him? Do you really know the Lord? Well, by this we know that we have come to know him. Verse five, are you in Christ? Are you actually in real relationship with him? Do you share in his status and identity? Well, by this we may know that we are in him. Chapter 2, verse 5. All right, hold on a second. Now, okay, I know him and that I'm in him, but there's a whole lot of people out there claiming to be the Lord's. And I'm just feeling kind of fed up because it's very confusing 
When I look at their lives and the things they're saying and the things they're doing, how can I really know those who are gods and those who aren't? Chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Concrete examples, concrete practical proofs. Is my love really real? Is it genuine? Well, chapter 3, verse 16. By this, we know love. Now, I know you're all reading ahead and finishing the sentences. That's good. That's all right. We'll unpack them. But there are... Hold on, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 such statements in these five chapters that grant us practical proof of assurance. Not only that the love is real, that we can be confident in Christ in 319, that the Lord is genuinely in us, 324, that we're able to recognize and know the Holy Spirit and his work in 4 verse 2, that our powers of discernment are able to be strengthened and enabled in 4 verse 6. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In 4.13, that we are in him and he is in us, reaffirmed. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And each of these have a practical conclusion to the sentence. One that we can be genuinely assured by. In 4.17, assurance of our experience of perfect love by this is love perfected with us. And in 5 verse 2, the clarification of, actually, is my love for others really real? Well, by this we know that we love the children of God. And so, the Lord is, is intent on helping us as his children have assurance. He's intent on strengthening us in that which is true whilst clarifying that which is not. And in the process, it might be quite challenging. 
it might be quite challenging for us because we find that actually, I've had a misplaced assurance. But that doesn't have to be the end of the matter because Christ came to save sinners. And so it is all unto the end, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 13, that we might all come into a robust and solid faith in Jesus Christ so that we can know as one who believes in the name of the Son of God, that we have, that we have eternal life. You know, it's not uncommon for Christians to fear death. It's not uncommon for Christians to fear death. But it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be the case that, as a Christian, we fear death. And we see that underlined in 5.13. Of all people, we're supposed to be able to stare death in the face with a smile. We're supposed to be able to laugh in the face of death. And it doesn't even have to be like Al Pacino mad style. Ha, 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 you want to kill me? <laughs> but just genuinely, because we know our Redeemer lives. So, a sure assurance. Now, one of the things that's going to help us as we go through this letter um, is going to be understanding the background and the motivation of John in his writing. What actually provoked the writing of this letter? Now, one of the things that we see evidenced in the letter and also true from history, the history of the time of the first century, there was a philosophy that was quite prominent and was, was gaining ground during that season of the first century. And that philosophy was the philosophy of Gnosticism or the Gnostics. The word Gnostic basically meaning knowledge. And this philosophy was based on the pursuit of secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. You might have been at school and you know, remember those situations where you kind of see some people, they're in the corner and they're talking and friends and you go over and you're like, um, yeah, so what's going on? You want, you, want to, you want to know the latest? What's going on? Who said what about who? And they're all kind of quiet, cagey. You know, I can't even really tell you, you know. You know, <clears throat> hush, hush. Need to know basis. And you spend the rest of your day trying to work out and find out who is it that, what is, go, what is going on? And this secret knowledge is plaguing you. And you, don't, you won't feel satisfied until you gain the understanding. That was kind of the basis of Gnosticism. And you see, the, the, the cherry was this, that once you attain this secret knowledge, you would transcend the physical. 
And being this transcendent individual, you would transcend the physical and you would be spiritually heightened to the point where you were above the physical because physical is bad. But spiritual is good. And the way to enlightenment was through this secret knowledge. And so, the philosophy of Gnosticism affected the culture of the time in different ways. But one of the things that was quite impacting was just this notion that that which is physical is bad and that which is spiritual is good. Now you can imagine as the gospel is being spread in this context, with this philosophy being the, the YOLO of its day, how people then viewed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So hold on a second. Jesus, the Christians say that he's God in the flesh. Well, that means two things. Either one, he wasn't really in the flesh. He was just appearing to be because he can't have been in the flesh because flesh is what? Hello? Bad, thank you. So obviously I'm speaking from a Gnostic voice. In their mind, flesh is bad. So Jesus, the Son of God, manifest in the flesh? How would, like, why would God want to ha have anything to do with putting himself in flesh? No, nah, he can't have been flesh. He wasn't real. He was a phantom. He was a ghost, duppy. He just appeared, and, and that's how he was from the beginning. And so that would have implications on whether Jesus actually died for our sin. Because if he wasn't a physical being, he was just an, an appearance, a ghost, then how could he have suffered for the sins of the world? There was another way in which it impacted the culture to the opposite extreme. On one hand, they said, well, flesh is bad, so Jesus couldn't have been in the flesh. On the other hand, they said, okay, well, he wasn't God. He can't have been, he was a man. Yeah, we believe he was a man. We heard about what happened in Jerusalem. Got nailed to a cross, but that's all he was. He was a man. He wasn't God. Couldn't have been because God wouldn't inhabit flesh, right? And so as we look at chapter one, verses one to five, we see that this is what John tackles head on. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked to... You notice the emphasis on the experience of the senses? From the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, that means not just kind of casually glanced at, but gazed, studied, looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father, yes, in heaven, and was made manifest, revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We proclaim also to you. So we see that John, from the outset, goes in on this Gnostic philosophy and endeavors to clarify that actually, Jesus is one with the Father, fully God, and was fully man, revealed openly before us. We held him. John could have said, you know what? I was the brother in my gospel that I talked about when I said the, the, the disciple who laid his head on his breast. He rested his head on his chest. They were tight. They were brethren. And so we begin to see straight away. We see also in chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, that might seem like not much of a statement. But when John says Jesus is the Christ, he's speaking of the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament who was predicted by the prophets, who would come the ancient of days of Daniel, who would come, the son of man, and be manifest. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. And so to deny that Jesus was in the flesh, was a heresy. To deny that he was God was equally a heresy. John weren't having it. There was other implications with regards to Gnostic philosophy. You see, not only was it a case that they, it affected their view of Christ, but it also threatened Christians' views of Christian living. How do we live as Christians? And so on one hand, there was the withdrawal mentality, like monks, you know what? Flesh is bad. And so we need to rid ourselves as much as possible of all fleshly and carnal pleasures of, of any sort. And so they would re retreat and they would sing monotone songs. They wouldn't even have the luxury of harmonies. And they would wear clothes that were rough, like, uh, if I say potato sacks, people don't even know what that is nowadays. Well, you do, bro, but. <laughs> like, my, 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 my gran would call it crocos bug. <laughs> you know about crocos bug, Bridget? That rough, hemp-like, that, 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 rope-like material. That's, you know like rope, yeah, and it's, and it's kind of... They, they would have clothes made out of material like old rope because they wouldn't have nothing soft and, and, and velvety next to their skin because they had to deny their fleshly senses. 
They would withdraw themselves from physical pleasure and even just the most basic kind of experiences. And they would endeavor to focus the development of their mind. And they would just study the scriptures and that's all they would do. And they had been affected and bought into this idea that you just need knowledge to transcend and to, to, to rise above. And yet we see that John places an emphasis on knowledge in this letter. In 2 verse 3, by this we know, we have come to know him. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him. Verse 5, by this we may know. And repeatedly and constantly, John refers to knowledge, but a right knowledge. A knowledge of the truth, but a knowledge that is outworked practically in real living, not merely withdrawal from life and relationships. The final point, the other way in which this Gnostic thought affected Christians of their day was simply this. If flesh is bad and spirit is good, then you know what? It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your flesh as long as your heart is right. Right? Sound vaguely familiar? It don't matter how you're living. It don't matter what kind of sin you're sinning with your body. As long as your heart is right, because God knows your heart, right? And yet, John, again, quite clearly from the outset, takes aim at that attitude and that perspective. In chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And in that one statement, wow, John so masterfully combines two thoughts when it comes to light. Light represents purity um, in a moral sense. Except God's, God being light exceeds morality. It's, it's a spiritual purity that goes beyond even mere morality. Whilst at the same time, on the other hand, it combines the idea of revealed understanding. You know, they talk about switching the lights on. I can see, oh, it makes sense now. And in either sense, in him, there is no darkness. There's no secret knowledge that you've got to pursue. God's revealed. He's spoken in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. All that pertains to life and godliness has been granted to us. Whilst at the same time, there is no wickedness in God. There is no evil. There is no sin in God. And as John goes on to explain, there's no accommodation of sin in God. Although there is provision 
for sin. One of the most first famous verses from 1 John is 1 John 1 verse 9. And I'm sure that there are... Anyone quote that from memory? 1 John 1 verse 9. If we... All right, I heard a few of you do it anyway. You work with me. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Notice it's a conditional promise. Anyway, we'll come to that. But the reality is that God doesn't accommodate sin, but he's made provision for it in Christ Jesus. And this is the basis, first and foremost, upon which we can have assurance. Not because we know scripture, not because we had a conversion experience, not because we're mighty in faith. Our assurance shouldn't be affected because we recognize we we are flawed and sinful and we, we mourn at the state of our own sin as we should. Our assurance is based on Jesus. As it says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, old school word. You would think with these modern translations, they would have got rid of that word a long time ago. But it's so packed with meaning, so rich, like we can't do away with that. Jesus Christ is the satisfactory, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. And that's the only basis upon which we can have any assurance whatsoever before God. That through faith in the work of Christ, we are forgiven. Through faith in what he has done, Christ alone, we are forgiven. And so, we see in this book the great assurance that we stand to receive as we study it. Great assurance. One that will, if we take it to heart, absolutely transform our lives. Imagine being able to express the true joy of the Father, fellowship with God, victory over sin, even your strength being strengthened. Imagine having your faith in Christ proven right. Being strengthened against deception. Being assured ultimately that you now have eternal, not you will have, but you now have eternal life. 
Imagine the difference that that's going to make to your walk. As we are granted a sure assurance in Christ Jesus. Shall we stand? God has purposed that we have assurance here and now. That we don't have to wait until we are dead to see what happens. But that we can run joyfully toward that day. Christians throughout the ages have lived that reality and died that reality. Dying even with praise on their lips as they were being tortured. Because they appreciated, as it says in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, past tense, by faith, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That there's no need to fear death. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we presently stand. We stand by grace. Not because we're smart, not because we're disciplined, not because we're diligent, not because we're lucky. We stand by grace and we rejoice in hope. The sure expectation of what is to come of the glory of God. Amen? May we be assured as we embark on this journey. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would um, encourage our hearts, Lord. That you would stir us, Lord, as we look to you by means of your word. We pray that, Lord, you would cause us to be not just intrigued, Lord, but inspired as we consider this letter that you've granted to us as a gift through your Apostle John. We thank you, Lord, that the truths therein are of your spirit, not just John's ideas, and that your spirit is eternal and that truth applies to us today. I pray, Lord, that as we give ourselves to the, the reading and the study and as we chew it over and chop it up in community groups, Lord, that, Lord, you would impact and transform our lives. That truly we would have a sure assurance that would silence the, the mouth of the mockers and he who is the accuser of the brethren. All because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. May you be greatly glorified through the ministry of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org 
or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.